So we come here to the 10th plague, the announcement of the 10th plague. But we also come to the institution of the, of the Passover as well. Uh, and so we're going to consider this morning as we look at this text, we're going to be looking at how the Passover in light of the 10th plague is supposed to shape Israel's self-identity. How they're supposed to understand themselves now as the people of God. And it's a reorientation to some degree for them. But I want to read a quote for you from a Taylor Swift song. And I just want to tell you, it's not that funny. <laughs> it is true that there are quite a few Taylor Swift songs that I like, that I enjoy. I want you to know that so that you'll know how to interpret the things that I say better. It's part of who I am. This is a moment of intimacy for you and me. We can share with one another. And so I'm going to share with you from Everything Has Changed. Taylor Swift sings this. She says, all I know is we said hello, and your eyes look like coming home. And all I know is a simple name, everything has changed. All I know is you held the door, you'll be mine and I'll be yours. All I know since yesterday is everything has changed. All right, so Taylor's talking about the fact that she met a guy, and the guy changed everything for her. Uh, and then maybe you've had experiences like this where something happens, something momentous happens, and you know Everything's changed. From this point on, everything has changed. Whether that's your wedding, I remember the day that Wyatt, our first child, was born, and I looked at him, and you know, I'm supposed to say, I just, I felt so overwhelmed with joy. I felt overwhelmed with terror that day. Uh, I loved him, and I knew that I was insufficient for the task that lay ahead of me, but it changed everything. There are moments that we experience, that we would say, yeah, everything has changed. And I want you to understand, when the Passover is instituted and the Lord comes into Egypt to execute this 10th plague, everything for how Israel understands itself and its relationship to God is changed. Now, I want to nuance that. I want you to know that God hasn't changed. His plans haven't changed. But somewhere along the way, the people of Israel have begun to think that what makes them unique is that they're part of a certain bloodline. And the Passover reorients them so they understand, no, it's not your bloodline that makes you unique. It's the blood sacrifice that covers you that makes you unique. It's not about what ethnicity or what religious affiliation you have or who your great-great-great-grandfather was. It has to do with, has blood covered you? And so he reorients the people and so this morning, as we think about that, this reorientation that comes with understanding the Passover for the people of Israel and for us, we're going to be looking at this, uh, and the first thing we need to look at is see how the paradigm shift happens, how God reorients their thinking. And it's very obvious how he's going to go about this. Because if you look in this text, in chapter 11, chapter 11, if you read the previous plagues, it sounds like the same way God talks about the plagues. Tell Pharaoh, I'm going to do this. It's going to happen now, and it's not going to affect my people. It's only going to affect the Egyptians. It sounds like pretty much all the rest of the plagues. But what I want you to notice is that then we come to chapter 12, verse 1, on the heels of this. And I just want to help you understand the timeline. Chapter 12, verse 1 actually happens 14 days before verse 1 of chapter 11. That's not how we usually write books. But the way that, the, that, the, that Moses went about that is he kept the plagues together and then he helps us understand the Passover in light of understanding the plague. But chronologically, 
It happens 14 days earlier. So before Pharaoh hears about this plague, the people of Israel are hearing about this plague. And God says this in verse 1 of chapter 12. He says, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. He is saying to them that the Passover establishes a reboot. You are my people, and now your whole year, every year of your life starts with this reminder. Every year of your life starts with you remembering how I have saved you out of slavery. Every year of your life is going to start with you remembering what I did and how I passed over you. God's saying, you are the children of Abraham, you are my family, and my family is a family of Passovers. I'm going to pass over you all. And you're going to remember that year after year. It doesn't matter what Egypt's calendar was. It doesn't matter what any of the other ancient Near Eastern calendars were. It doesn't matter how that affects the way you think about commerce. It doesn't matter. Everything that matters is that you understand you're my people because I've passed you over. Because I've made a way for you to be my people. And we're going to start your year this way. So everything's changing in their minds. Not with God, but in the way that the people of Israel understand their relationship with him. They're not just part of a bloodline of Abraham. They are that, but being a, the people of God requires more than that. Not just being a, a part of a certain bloodline. You have to have the coverage of blood shed for you. And that blood matters more than the blood that courses through your own veins. And so God's family, already they're beginning to understand through the Passover that God's family is much bigger than just ethnic Jews. So as we look at this this morning, we, I want us to consider how the Passover helps us understand who we are, how it helps us understand what we need and what we're supposed to do. The Passover rebooted the entire life of the people of God so they would be a passed over people and it would shape how they understood themselves, how they understood their needs and how they understood what they were supposed to do. And so let's look at that together. All right, starting out with who we are. And I, I want you to, to consider that you are the people of Israel and you've watched the previous nine plagues come through. And what you learn through those nine plagues is that God is very powerful. He's judging your enemies. He's showing you mercy. But there's something about this where you're like, you, if you remember from the, the previous nine plagues, if you were in Goshen, which is where the people of Israel lived, you had light, you had less bugs, people, things weren't dying, things didn't stink. It was good to be in Goshen. And so the people had this understanding that, oh, well, we're, we're the people of God. We're in Goshen. So all these bad things happen to people who aren't in Goshen. And they didn't think of it as in terms of, well, if you're in the wrong town. It wasn't that. But like, we're special. We're special. We're the people in Goshen. And God, God does something with, in this plague that it's easy for us to miss it, but he, he really assaults their understanding. Uh, because they expect, they hear, the way that God talks to Pharaoh, he says, nothing's going to happen to my children. Nothing's going to happen to my people. Not even a dog is going to growl at them. They're like, yeah, that sounds right. That sounds like what God's done in the past. But then um, contrast that with what he says in verses 12 and 13 of chapter 12. God says this. He's talking through Moses to the people of Israel. He says, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. Right? That sounds like what we expect. Then he says, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. 
Do you understand what he's saying to them? He's saying, I'm going to go through Egypt, the entire land of Egypt, including Goshen. And if there is not blood already spilled, I will spill it. Meaning for the people of Israel, if there's no blood on your door, your firstborn will die. You see how he's, he's grabbing hold of their attention in a very real way, and he's helping them understand, in and of yourself, you're a sinner, just like the Egyptians. Everyone, and I like the way that Alec Motier says this. He said this in his commentary. He said, when Yahweh entered Egypt as absolute Lord and judge, Israel's problem was no longer how to escape Pharaoh, but how to be safe before such a God. When God came down to judge as the just God, everyone on earth deserved justice. Everyone in Egypt deserved justice, whether or not their bloodline came from Abraham or not. And so the people are being reminded, the Passover reminds them that in and of yourselves, you're just like everyone else. There are not two categories of people. There's one category of people, sinners. There's no difference between us and the Egyptians, we're all sinners and we stand and do judgment before God and his justice. That's a reminder that the people are being given through the Passover, but it goes beyond that because there is something unique about, not about the people, but about how God relates to the people of Israel. They receive his word, a word that brings safety to them. Because you are not, you're no different than the Egyptians, you're due justice, but your status is different because I've declared you to be my firstborn son. Remember when he said that to Pharaoh earlier in in, uh, Exodus? He says, Pharaoh, I want you to let my firstborn son go. God says, I declare my people to be my son. And so I will make a way for them to be saved, for them to experience safety. But it's not because of anything in the people in Goshen or anything in us. Our status is what's given to us by God to be counted among his sons and daughters, be counted as his family. So I want you to think of it this way. Remember the Johnny Cash song, God's Gonna Cut You Down? All right. You guys familiar with, like, two, two people are familiar with this song? Uh, it's, it's a very catchy tune that Johnny Cash wrote, and you'll remember these lines, you can run on for a long time, you can run on for a long time, you can run on for a long time. Sooner or later, God's gonna cut you down. Sooner or later, God's gonna cut you down. I want you to think of that. Israel's thinking, yeah, you can run Egypt, you can run Egypt, you can run Egypt. Sooner or later, God's going to cut you down. And then what God says to the Passover is, he says to his own people, you can run on for a long time, but sooner or later, God's going to cut you down too. Unless someone gets cut down for you. That is what God is reinforcing in the Passover is that our status is because of what God has done. And I want you to understand, how, does that, how should the Passover then affect the people of God? What kind of people should we be? What should the culture of our church family be? Oftentimes what we have is we have, essentially you have a church family that gathers and we pat each other on the back for being moral, for being better, for being the good ones, for being the holy ones but we're not honest with one another. And then we look at the world and we look at the world and we get involved in maybe it's culture wars or whatever you wanna call it, and instead of thinking of ourselves as those who are exactly like everyone else that doesn't worship the true God, we think we are special because we're the ones that worship the true God. Why do we worship the true God? Because he's passed over us. Because of what he's done for us. The Passover humbles us. 
so that we understand when, we, when you meet someone and they don't know Jesus, they're not following after Jesus, they're not part of a worshiping family, you are not better than that person. But you are privileged to be counted the son or daughter of God. Your status is different. But what is your heart gonna be for that person? You're gonna know we're broken in the same way. We need the same things. It shapes us so that we as a church family, we don't think we're the ones who have it all together and people have to check all their problems at the door before they come in. We become a place where we're honest about our problems. We're honest about our struggles. We're honest about how much we needed someone to be a substitute for us because we couldn't carry the weight ourselves. We know that we're just like everyone else. And here's what I want to encourage you, just one final thought. As a church family, it would be best if those who do not know Jesus find out how much we need Jesus before we tell them how much he needs Jesus. That kind of honesty and transparency says to someone, I know that I needed to be passed over, just like you need to be passed over. I want you just to to, to chew on that as we move on. All right, so that's who we are. We are fallen creatures. We are sinful men and women, just like everyone else, except God has said, I declare you to be my firstborn son. I've made you mine, so I'm gonna make a way for you to be safe. And so what do we need? Looking at, at what we need now. Well, we need God's plan. And I want you to look with me at verse one of chapter 12. This is important. When God institutes the plan, the Passover, it starts this way, just verse one. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, I'm not gonna read any more than that. The Lord said to them, God gives us the plan. God says, I have a plan for you, how you can be safe. And then he goes on and he expounds on what that plan is. But we have to start with understanding it's God's plan. This is the only way. This is the way that we experience safety. Is the way that God has deemed to be the way it's, it's accessible for us. And what does that plan look like? In God's plan, in verse 7, we're told that it's going to be requiring blood. And then in verse 13 of chapter 12, we're told that it's going to require the sacrifice, that there's going to have to be a substitute, that there's going to be blood, and God's going to look at the blood. It's not going to be our blood, but he's going to count it as if it were our blood. God says, when I come to that house, if there is blood already shed there, then I will pass over it. His plan is for justice to be done because sin requires death. And so no satisfaction for sin can happen unless death happens. And so death happened at every single home in Goshen. Death happened. So when God came to bring justice, he could say, death has happened here already. And I will pass over this house. I want you to think about the way that God forwards this kind of safety. God wants his people to be safe. I told you a few weeks ago that I watched that movie Noah, which was not so great, but there's one section in the movie, and this section, I think, as I've thought about it, I'm like, this, it really frustrates me. In the movie Noah, you've got Russell Crowe, and the water's coming, and he's, he's like fighting, he's pulling the door closed so they can be safe inside the ark. Do you know what Scripture tells us? Scripture says that God shut them in. God put them into a place of safety, and he shut them in. God said, here's a house, stay in the house with the blood on the doors. God's always been the one who says, there's a way for you to be safe. I've made you safe. So his plan is the only way that we go about receiving safety. And if you're the people of Israel and you find out you're supposed to sacrifice this lamb, one thing I want us to understand is there has never been any 
human beings that loved a lamb more than these people loved that lamb. Because you had husbands and wives and fathers and mothers who knew that that lamb meant that their firstborn child would live, the death of that lamb. There have never been lambs more loved than that. So I want us to, as we think about this, did those, did those people of Israel think, wow, so all my sin can be satisfied by this cute lamb dying? How could that be? It's not that this one lamb satisfies the just wrath of God. I want you to understand that. God is pointing to something bigger. There has to be death. There has to be the shedding of blood. There has to be a covering of blood, if you will, for there to be safety. And this lamb signifies something bigger than the lamb itself. Think about what it says in John chapter 1, when John the Baptist sees Jesus coming and he says, Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The lamb in Goshen was a picture of the lamb, the true lamb of God, the only one that could truly shed blood and satisfy God's just wrath. There's a, a great line from a hymn. We may be learning this hymn in not too long, possibly. It was written a couple years ago. One of the verses says this. It says, see him there upon the cross. It's called Jerusalem. Now no longer breathing. Feel the earth is shaking now. See the veil is split in two. And he, and he stood before the wrath of God, shielding sinners with his blood. When we talk about the Lamb of God, when God is using this idea of a substitute, that there can be one that can give their blood for you, it's because we need that shielding. I want you to understand that when God comes in justice to to satisfy his justice against sin, which he is good and right to do, Jesus shields us from that. The lamb did not shield the people of Israel. The lamb pointed to the ultimate sacrifice, the one promised in Genesis 3.15, that would be the one that would actually absorb all of the wrath. And so as God's people are huddled in these houses and God passes over them, it's not because there's anything special about lamb blood, it's because God knew already, my son is paying for this. And so when God passes over and doesn't, the destroyer doesn't go into these homes, it's because Jesus absorbed that wrath. And that's what it points to. And that's in part why God wants this story to be retold again and again and again. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But for us, as we think about the Passover, when we think about what we need, how often we think about, well, what I need on a daily basis, I need to be a better parent, I need to be a better friend. I need to be a better spouse. I need to be a better worker. I need to be a better employee or employer. I need to be a better civil servant. I need to be a better citizen. We think about all the things we need to do better. And a lot of times we focus our minds and we think, my greatest need today is X, Y, or Z. And I want us to understand there is not a day that goes by that our greatest need is not a substitute. There is never a day when we're not supposed to remember what I ultimately need is Jesus. That's why God says, we're gonna start your year this way and you're gonna come back to it again and again and again and there's gonna be a seven-day feast that commemorates it. You're gonna remember there is no need greater than a substitute. And God in, in his beautiful love for us, when a, husband starts, when a husband starts to realize and starts to wash over him that what he needs is not to be a better husband but to be overwhelmed by the fact that he's been passed over, he becomes a better husband. 
And when a wife thinks the same thing and she thinks, I just need to be a better wife, but then she realizes, no, I'm not earning anything through what kind of wife I am. I've been passed over. That realization, that gospel realization makes a wife a better wife and makes parents better parents, makes employees better employees, employers better employers because it humbles us and it gives us joy. And which, who doesn't want to be married to someone who's humble and joyful? Who doesn't want to be parented by someone who's humble and joyful? Who doesn't want someone to work for you that's humble and joyful? Or who doesn't want to work for someone who's humble or enjoy, and joyful? Who doesn't want to go to, to a class that's taught by someone who's humble and joyful? Who doesn't want to teach someone who's not humble and joyful? Do you see how when we understand that we're passed over, it affects everything? And we realize knowing that that's ultimately what I need and that it's been given for me works its way out in every aspect of life. Every aspect. And so that's what we need. We need a substitute. We need Jesus. And the Passover reminds us, you need Jesus. And you never stop needing Jesus. And then what are we supposed to do? That third question. How does the Passover help us understand what we're supposed to be about? I want you to, verses 14 through 20, I'm not going to read through all this in chapter 12, is when they talk about this feast of unleavened bread. And so what I want you to understand about this is what God is saying to his people is there's going to be a week at the beginning, the first month of your year, there's always going to be a week when you remember what I've done for you. It'll always be on your calendar. It will always be on your radar. You will always have a reminder of what I've done for you. So part of what we're supposed to do in light of who God has made us and how he is exactly what we need, our response is to remember that he's the one that's made us this way. He's the one that's cared for us. He's what we need. He's given everything for us. Remembering is part of our duty. Remembering what God has done for us. But then there's also in chapter 12, if you look at verses 24 through 27, he says this. He says, you shall observe this Passover rite as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it's the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel and Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshiped. We're supposed to remember what God has done for us and then tell those who don't understand about what God has done for us. That's, that's our response to the fact that we are as needy as anyone else, but God has declared us as sons and daughters and made a way for us to be in his family and given his own son so that we can be his family. How do we respond? We never forget what he's done and we tell people about it. That's what we do. I heard a guy talking earlier, I guess it was last week, and he was talking about the fact that everyone's an evangelist. Everyone's evangelizing, it's just not for the same things. Uh, and I thought about two, I guess it was a month ago or maybe two months ago, I watched Interstellar for the first time. I realized it came out in 2014, so I was way behind. Uh, but I became a late Interstellar evangelist. For about four days, I couldn't talk to someone without talking about Interstellar all of which tried to remember the movie because it's been two years since they'd seen it. But that's exactly what happens. When something captures your affections, it captures your attention, you realize it is so good, you want to talk about it. This guy who I was listening to, he was talking about the fact that um, one of his neighbors uh, runs a CrossFit gym and is like a huge CrossFit evangelist and finally got him after months and months of badgering this guy, he's now doing CrossFit. Seeing the guy, I don't think he's been in CrossFit for super long, but he is going. 
And I have a neighbor who is also a personal trainer. And as you'll notice, she, she hasn't gotten hold of me either. But I'm wondering about how long that'll take because people who are excited about something, they don't stop. Someone who's excited about fitness doesn't stop. They want other people to experience the benefits. I wanted people to watch Interstellar. You want people to do something. We're wired that way. And so the Passover is supposed to help us understand that God intends for us to understand our story and the story of God that that he has for us so that we want to tell people about it. I want you to understand this in the context for the people of Israel. God is saying, I want you to have this feast so that when your children who either haven't been born yet or don't understand what's happening, when they ask you why you observe the Passover, you can tell them your story. And so for us, I want you to understand the Passover happens here and we're over here now on on sort of the timeline. We can still tell the story of the Passover. We can still explain to people the beauty of the Passover. But I want you to understand that wasn't the full story. The story keeps unfolding. And what I want you to understand is God's saying, because of the Passover, you always have a story to tell. And I've passed over you too. So you have your own Passover story to tell. People need to know your story. How did God bring you to a place where he declared you to be his son and daughter? How did he bring you to a place where you realized that you needed someone else's blood to be shed or else you were going to stand in judgment before God? And then how he has loved and been faithful to you. Our personal stories are gospel stories. They're past over stories. And so God intends for us to always and for every generation be a group of people who remember what God has done, and we are excited to tell people what he's done, not just for Israel, but for me and for you. You have that story if you're a follower of Jesus. Do you know how to tell it? Do you know how to tell your story in such a way that it has the proper hero? If you told your story, if you wrote it down, would people walk away and realize there is a God who loved that young man or that young woman so much, he passed over their sins and adopted them into his family? If we tell our stories where we're the hero, then we don't understand the gospel. If we tell our stories where we're the villain and the hero saves us, then we know the story. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you have that story. You just may not know how to tell it yet, but you can work on that, and I encourage you to. As we come to the table this morning, I'm not going to spend too much time sort of connecting the dots here for you because I know um, some of it will make sense pretty quickly, but we're going to have a chance to come here to the Lord's table together. And if you remember, it was on the night of Passover that Jesus gathered his disciples together and he instituted the Lord's Supper. So from, the, from that moment in 12.1 here in Exodus when God says, your year starts now, you will be a people who are shaped by a meal, a meal that reminds you of what I've done for you. We are still a people that are shaped by a meal that reminds us of what God has done for us. And so as we come here, we're coming here to enjoy bread and to enjoy juice. We gather to feast, and that feast is a commemoration to remind us that God has passed over our sins, that there is blood that covers this building, not on our lintel or on our doorpost, but there is blood that covers this. This is a place of safety for those who know the Lord Jesus. We are safe in Christ. He's our ark. He's our, he's our house with blood on the door. He's the one that saved us. And we celebrate that when we come to the table. Let's pray.